strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study and welcome back to this, the uh, 2018 fall and winter season of Bone and Sickle. I am, of course, your host, Al Reitenauer, and this is my valet, Wilkinson. How do you do? Wilkinson assists with the show, pulling books from the shelves and reading any directly quoted passages I might wish to reference. Uh, I think you will notice how well-suited his voice is to this particular task. Thank you, sir. I hope all our listeners are enjoying the season's change, lovely autumn, when the skies grow somber, life begins to drain from the trees, and nature herself begins the long, slow death of year's end. As is traditional, we've brought something of Mother Nature indoors, where it's more pleasantly experienced. Uh, Wilkinson has covered the library floor with the colors of autumn, dried leaves, a veritable carpet of reds and oranges and rusty browns. Perhaps we should post some pictures while it's all fresh. Actually, why don't you walk around in them? At least the listeners can hear what we're talking about. The crunching of leaves? The sound of autumn, yes. Go ahead. That's all. Really, you... Why are you standing with your back to me? What... what is this? Not again. We're supposed to be doing the opening sequence, not worrying about the cat. He hasn't stopped leaving messages since last Thursday, sir. I feel like I can't delete them unless you listen. But I know you don't like to operate the answering machine. And it's going to be full soon. Just delete them. Well, I just don't feel right. Maybe you should listen. Why not? We may as well take this podcast completely off the rails. So, the dirty laundry Wilkinson is airing here is a little spat I'm having with my associate, Paul Kudnaras, about a mummified cat he gave me. Hey, Al, it's Paul. Uh, listen, uh, I wanted to get in touch with you about that mummified cat. It's not alone, it was a gift. He's, it's Are clearly one donation. It? I need to get that thing back. I gotta tell you the truth. It's it's not actually mine. I mean, not <sighs> completely. It kind of sort of belongs in a museum. <laughs> well, there you and go. And I know they've been, looking for, uh, they've been looking for it on inventory. If you could get that thing back to me maybe in the next couple of days, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. That's just a recent That's message. Nothing. There are So other... he's gotten himself into trouble with the museum, and I'm supposed to bail him out. Well, I'm I can't just... come cleaning up everyone's messes. We have a show to do. This is also intrusive. Well, just let me know if you'd like me to offer a response. What I'd like to do is get this podcast going. Episode 11, 
The Dead Speak. So, Bone and Sickle, as you likely know, is about the intertwining of horror and folklore, often with a little bit of cultural history thrown in. Um, I started this as a way uh, to uh, expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as a form of research for another project I'm undertaking. Bone and Sickle usually airs either twice a month or every other Monday, but for the month of October, we are offering a special treat. Two episodes on consecutive Mondays, this and the next, to be followed by a third on October 29th. This being a month when we traditionally consider the spirits of the dead, we'll dedicate the first two, uh, generally to the topic of spiritualism and seances. The third will look at necromancy in classical antiquity. Bone and Sickle is made possible through the generosity of our Patreon donors. I'll have more details on that at the end of the show. Old graybeards say there is a hell beyond the grave. They lie. There is no hell like the hell of one's own guilty conscience. Prisoner, prepare. The executioner has arrived. Come, William Corder. The scaffold awaits you. An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. Blood for blood. Thus ends the story of William Corder, executed in 1827 in Polstead, England, for the murder of his unfortunate fiancée, Mariah Martin. The recording, made in 1932, is based upon the popular Victorian melodrama, The Red Barn Murder, named for the place where the murder transpired and where Martin's body was later discovered. The reason I mention it here, it's said that Mariah's ghost revealed her body's location. She appears for three nights in the dreams of Mariah's stepmother, and on the third, the woman wakes her husband to go dig for the body in the barn, as this uh, popular ballad of the time records. And when they dug seven inches deep, the body there they found, tied in a sack and mangled with many a ghastly wound. Horrific as the discovery must have been, the public obsession with the case and the aftermath of Quarter's execution are in some ways more horrific still. Some 5,000 spectators were reported to have filed past the body when removed from the gallows, and souvenir hunters stripped the red barn itself down to its timbers. It was reported that surgeons satisfying their medical curiosities in a sort of free-form autopsy experimented with a galvanic battery brought from Cambridge to test recent theories of galvanism and post-mortem muscle response. Death masks were casts, quarter skeleton was shipped off to a medical school, and the skin flayed from his body was tanned by the surgeon George Creed and used as binding for books in which the details of his heinous deeds were recorded. This is Vincent Price with a special Halloween feature. And now, another story of ghosts seeking a proper burial. I think it's a spirit. 
or something? They decided to try to contact the, uh, something. Let's all hold hands and, and just concentrate. They stared into the darkness. Not quite how it happened, but how the story of the Fox Sisters was presented by Vincent Price in his 1973 radio series, Hall of Horrors, which I'll link on the website. So, the actions of the Fox Sisters from Hydesville, New York, are a traditional place to begin when we're talking about seances and the spiritualist movement. They were three sisters, Margaret and Kate, aged 15 and 12 at the time this all began, and an older married sister, Leah, living in Rochester. The Hydesville house had some prior reputation as being haunted, and one spring night in 1848, they were disturbed by unexplainable, loud, harsh rapping. I think it's a spirit or something. Now, ghostly rappings are as old as ghost lore itself, but what's new here was Kate's suggestion that the entity communicate answers via a specific number of raps, which it did, always remaining invisible, but eventually identifying itself as the ghost of a peddler, uh, Charles Rosna, who'd been murdered in the home. And more spirits soon chimed in from the great beyond. When the parents heard of this spirit game, they were initially skeptical, assuming it was some childish prank or had some other cause, but finding no explanations, they came to believe in the spirits, as did visiting neighbors and eventually hordes of curious spectators from far and wide. Part of what turned this oddity into an actual movement was that it all took place in a very receptive location and time. Upstate New York was the birthplace of Mormonism and Shaker teachings, an area called the Burned Over District, as it had been swept so many times in the recent past by the fires of religious revivals. Soon, the girls were shipped off to the care of older Leah, who took them on an exhibition tour and founded a spiritualist society that later became the Spiritualist Church. There's a bit more to the Fox sisters' story, which we'll conclude in the next episode. It's a bit of a twist. But the Fox sisters did not control the movement. Other would-be mediums were soon coming out of the woodwork and likewise going on the public circuit for these performances that was evolving at the time. And there were also smaller home circles that emulated the actions of public mediums like the Foxes. And these were more intimate gatherings. Intimate may be a key word here, along with the religious sentiments and the yearning to contact dead loved ones. There was also the novel intimacy of these uh, mixed sex gatherings. Uh, sitting close and holding hands in dark rooms offered this sort of titillation not normally available in those days. We'll look a bit more thoroughly at this erotic aspect of this seance and comes into full flower by the 1920s in our next episode. Of course, these smaller groups also afforded participants more opportunity to contact their own uh, dead friends and relatives, uh, just as the foxes had initially spoken to the peddler, who then introduced other talkative beings on the other side. Mediums running these groups had their uh, sort of ongoing go-to spirit uh, contact, known as their control, who uh, sort of emceed the whole affair, introducing other spirits along the way. Thanks to the era's romantic fascination with Native Americans, uh, spirit guides such as uh, Blackfoot or Red Chief served as controls for many groups. 
but assorted dead relatives or other historical figures might also serve the purpose. We're gathered here to commune with whomsoever wishes to contact us. What is in this house? If there is someone who wishes to speak to speak us. Speak to John. Or any one of us. So, some of these uh, public mediums competing with the foxes got an edge in the competition by uh, adding more bells and whistles, or even whole musical ensembles, as was the case with the family of Jonathan Coons, a, a farmer from rural Ohio near Mount Nebo, which was uh, allegedly a sacred site to the local Shawnee Indians. After encountering the foxes on a tour in the early 1850s, Coons returned home with the realization that not only he, but also his wife, Abigail, and his oldest son, Nahum, had the gift, as they say. So he began holding seances, and soon the spirits demanded a dedicated space, a, a log cabin spirit room. The dimensions, uh, 10 by 15 feet, and furnishings and equipment of which the spirits meticulously prescribed. Among the furnishings reported in several sources uh, was a table with drawers containing paints and inks to be used by the spirits and uh, an array of instruments. The list included a tenor and bass drum, a guitar, accordion, trumpet, tin horn, handbell, triangle, and two fiddles. There are also references to a spiritual machine constructed by Coons, which sounds at first like a sort of one man or I guess one ghost uh, band contrivance, the kind of thing with drums and bells and whistles attached. But there are also mentions of other parts as in an article reprinted in an 1855 edition of Scientific America, it includes glass knobs and uh, copper wires woven into a kind of network with copper and tin plates. The records are scant and it's hard to know, but it's suggested that the machine was built to collect and make use of spiritual energies. Seances began with a cannon-like crack of the drum, leading into a serenade on various instruments performed by the spirits and accompanied on fiddle. The performance was said to be audible from as much as a mile away. Also joining in was a choir singing in an unrecognizable language. The voices seemed to come in from a distance, softly at first, then growing louder and characterized in reports as almost human and unearthly. By the mid-1850s, Jonathan Coons and other public mediums were no longer only delivering written messages, but engaging in direct voice channeling, allowing the spirits to speak directly through the medium's mouth and vocal apparatus. Uh, Coons' primary spirit control was a figure calling itself John King, a name which seems to have been chosen after death, as in life, uh, this John King was supposed to have been the Welsh pirate Henry Morgan, that is the same Captain Morgan known for spirits of another kind. Um, the figure of John King became quite popular among spiritualists and began 
showing up in other seances as uh, the spirit control. When Coons spoke, he did so through the aforementioned trumpet, or using it really as a megaphone, uh, since it was said he needed amplification as the spirit's control over humans' organs of speech uh, tended to produce only faint and ghostly whispers. These uh, spirit trumpets, as they came to be called, uh, became a fixture in later seances and were usually equipped with phosphorescent rings so that they could be uh, seen as they floated about the darkened seance room. Tambourines with uh, glowing or phosphorescent painted skins were also uh, commonly used. A flying tambourine is mentioned by a Dr. G. Swan of Cincinnati who visited the Coons spirit room. One moment I would feel it on my head or brushing my hair and the next moment it would be on the other side of the room. A John Gage of Illinois mentions a clanging triangle. Occasionally thrust almost in my face so that I was afraid it would hit me. The instruments themselves were grasped by glowing disembodied hands, which later in the seance were called upon to pen messages from the spirits, sometimes written at speed so fast, uh, according to one witness, we could hardly see it go. These hands were said to have been inspected quite closely. Uh, Dr. Swan grasped one, commenting that it felt precisely like the hands of the subjects I had handled in the dissecting room. In a letter from an E.V. Wilson of Toronto in an 1855 edition of the Anglo-American magazine, it's reported, I felt the hand and the fingers. They were cold and clammy, yet apparently of a solid substance. The fingers were flexible and possessed joints and nails. The skin of the hands felt to me like the skin of a ripe peach. I ran my hand along the back of the spirit's hand until I came to the end at the wrist when my hand slipped off into the air. Then the hand turned round and presented the end of the wrist towards me. I took hold of it and am satisfied that it was not attached to any human body. As the uh, 1860s progressed, mediums again upped their game, um, offering attendees more visible tokens of the spirit's presence. Uh, spirit photography, which is fairly well known, uh, shows up at this time, uh, though there's another lesser known means of capturing ghostly images that involved setting out bowls of warm paraffin or soft putty and inviting the otherworldly visitors to impress a hand, a foot, or even a face in the substance. Actually, these wax spirit impressions, uh, usually these were of hands, sometimes faces, but when writer Paul Hoitze attended a sitting and the face print was requested, the impression was altogether different. Uh, perhaps perturbed by Hoitz's skeptical presence, it seems a materialized spirit hiked up its spirit drapery and pressed its nude buttocks into the wax. Hoitz, however, drew his own conclusions about the print when it was later reported that uh, Kluski's own distinctively ample backside had been treated for burns of the type hot paraffin might produce. Seance attendees also began reporting uh, gifts from the spirits, uh, small objects apported from thin air, supposedly. Uh, there'd be flowers, coins, stones, 
seashells, uh, these scented perfumes would materialize. Uh, even live animals would sometimes be manifested. The Australian medium, Charles Bailey, was famous for his apports, as the spiritualists call them, uh, which included uh, sometimes uh, antiquities, such as small stone tablets or coins. Uh, he's also known for producing the, these live animals they mentioned, uh, including fish, uh, turtles, crabs, also birds. Uh, but he was exposed in 1910 when a pet shop owner from whom Bailey had just purchased some birds recognized them while in attendance at one of his seances. A skeptical investigator of mediums, Joseph McCabe, was later to write of the birds that they had been secreted by Bailey into the seance room, tucked away in... The unpleasant end of his elementary canal. Do you wish to show yourself to us? But a medium's work is never done, and eventually they felt called upon to produce full body materializations of their spirits. Uh, these would usually appear in what was known as spirit drapery, which just means loose robes and veils. To produce these, mediums would reach into a uh, spirit cabinet, that's what it was called, an actual wooden box or closet, or just a niche hidden by heavy curtains from whence the spirits would appear. These cabinets, which uh, skeptics inevitably would recognize as changing rooms, were justified on the analogy of a photographer's dark room or a protected area where this uh, sensitive transformation or manifestation could occur. Um, because the spirits are said to be produced from the very physical substance of the medium and the process delicate, sitters could not open these cabinets or both the ghost and medium would be endangered. To prove that no deception was taking place, the medium would often be tied or handcuffed or even uh, have their hair nailed to the cabinet wall, a precaution that stage magicians and escape artists recognized and readily explained as ineffective. Among the spiritualists of the 1870s who produced full-body materializations, the brothers uh, William and Horatio Eddy of Chittenden, Vermont, stand out for the sheer number of spirits produced. They also claim to be psychics, a gift that was said to be inherited uh, from ancestors such as Mary Bradbury, who in uh, 1692 was executed during the Salem witchcraft trials. The Eddie's seances included a full gamut of effects, uh, ghostly serenades on floating instruments, strange lights, and apports of uh, flowers and other items. They held their seances on a second floor of their farmhouse or in a dedicated spirit room at a local tavern, as well as a nearby cave called Honto's Cave after one of uh, their familiar spirits, a female Native American who usually appeared with several other similarly costumed figures. A typical Eddie seance was something of a costume review with up to 30 spirits appearing on stage, often Native Americans or elderly Yankees, but also Russians, uh, Asians, Africans, pirates. 
Accounts mention Honto and other spirits dancing with uh, those in attendance, uh, while Horatio furnished music on the violin. An 1874 article from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch mentions a Mrs. Cleveland dancing with Honto when... During Honto's second appearance, a small animal having the appearance of a rat accompanied her. It was not seen until pointed out by Honto, when it created a laugh, of course. It's a rat! exclaimed a chorus of voices. Mrs. Cleveland, who was dancing with Honto, screamed and jumped about the stage at a fearful rate. Each time the animal came out with its mistress, it was declared to be a rat. Finally, after the girl had bowed herself out for the last time, Mrs. Eaton, another spirit, who rarely appears, cried out in a sharp, feminine voice, It's not a rat! It's Honto's pet flying squirrel! Another well-known medium of the 1870s offering uh, a rather less vaudevillian uh, take on seances was the uh, teenage Londoner Florence Cook. She was taken seriously enough to be investigated by a man of science, Sir William Crookes, known for his uh, pioneering work with vacuum tubes and radiography. Between 1871 and 1874, uh, Crookes uh, studied Cook and her spirit control, Katie King, said to be the daughter of the John King, a.k.a. Captain Morgan previously mentioned. Uh, Cook's uh, study approach would seem quite rigorous as he insisted that these experiments take place only in his house and under conditions he specified. Uh, during the three years Cook stayed with the Crookses, uh, Katie King was subjected to all manner of uh, very physical examinations by Crooks. The spirit was weighed and measured, her pulse was taken, her body scrutinized with Crooks reporting multiple physical differences between the medium Cook and the spirit King, such as the presence or absence of pierced ears and a difference in height. Uh, there uh, were 43 pictures actually taken by Crooks of King, including a rather well-known one of the two uh, standing arm in arm. But despite the growing scientific curiosity about this new phenomenon of spiritualism, uh, Crook's reputation suffered within the scientific community as uh, many speculated that something else was afoot between the uh, 39-year-old scientist and the attractive 15-year-old medium. The fact that Crook's pregnant wife was indisposed and bedridden during the early months of the project suggested to many other interpretations of the data. A sad story. Evaluating the ethics or veracity of spiritualists and their claims is not really a topic I'm going to explore here, but it's also hard to avoid this uh, topic of spiritualists and their tricks. Magicians of the period, most famously Harry Houdini, produced a flood of books and articles on the topic. False panels, trap doors, telescoping rods, balloons, and muslin painted with luminous paint, uh, accordions rigged with air hoses, uh, Resined threads dragged over the strings of self-playing violins. Uh, even whispery splutters produced by combusting flakes of potassium placed in spirit horns. Uh, all of these were tools of the trade. Uh, skilled confederates, of course, were important, especially when it came to playing the ghost. The medium herself might also appear as the spirit. Uh, 
Annie Fairlam Mellon, uh, for instance, uh, represented the spirit of a young girl, Sissy, by waddling about the seance room on her knees, uh, while picking the pockets of sitters, no less. British magician and debunker Harry S. Marriott in 1910 contributed a series of articles on spiritualist flimflam to the magazine Pearson's, uh, describing tricks such as that of the German spiritualists who simulated a miraculous uh, manifestation of prawns uh, by stuffing an overhead lampshade full of seafood and providing a nudge at a well-timed moment. Marriott's most famous discovery was an ultra-secret uh, spiritualist prop catalog issued by a magician in Chicago in 1901 called Gambles with Ghosts, Mind-Reading, Spiritualistic Effects, Mental and Physical Phenomenon, and Horoscopy. Within its pages, one could find everything needed for a spiritualist con. Uh, phosphorescent spirit drapery, ghost forms, uh, hands, limbs, and puppets, table-tipping devices, and belts that produce spirit wrappings through something that's like a pop of a bending metal tape measure. Of course, fake ectoplasm would also be available within the pages of this catalog. It was the stock and trade of fraudulent spiritualists, most of whom just whipped up their own. The most common material used was uh, muslin or cheesecloth, which would be swallowed and regurgitated, quite a skill in itself. Um, various products would be used to grease the fabric and ease the process. Uh, egg whites, potato starch, and gelatin are mentioned. Um, other recipes also mentioned uh, use uh, soap, hopefully not swallowed, and a combination of toothpaste and peroxide, which was said to have been used to create uh, more a, a foaming kind of living mass. Today we naturally may be cynical about all this, but for a period in the late 19th and early 20th century, the notion of ectoplasm seemed to offer at least a theoretical mechanism explaining a host of otherwise baffling phenomena associated with mediums and seances. Uh, the term uh, ectoplasm was coined in 1894 by uh, Charles Richet, a uh, Parisian scientist who in 1913 was awarded the Nobel Prize for his work on anaphylactic shock. The journal Nature, in a 1928 article, found evidence for ectoplasm's existence. A 1922 article in Scientific America debated the topic, and ectoplasm was given serious consideration in H.G. Wells and Julian Huxley's The Science of Life, a volume called uh, The First Modern Textbook of Biology, one in use uh, in many British schools into the 1950s. To quote the text describing the phenomenon, Usually, but not necessarily, the exudation occurs by mouth and nose. It may sometimes come out of the head and the neck, the ears, or from other orifices of the medium. It has a quantitative abundance, like the foam of bottled beer when the beer is up. This ooze presently takes on forms and, it is asserted, organic structure also, hands, feet, grotesque bestial forms. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who uh, we've mentioned as a great supporter of spiritualism and psychical research, saw it as a viscous, gelatinous substance which appeared to differ from every known form of matter in that it could solidify and be used for material purposes. 
1925 lecture, Doyle details some of these purposes. It may form rods which carry force, or which make rapping noises, or raise objects at a distance, or it may form images. Ectoplasm could do anything. It was many things to many people. Uh, to uh, French physician and psychical researcher Gustave Gellif, it was... Very variable in appearance, being sometimes vaporous, sometimes a plastic paste, sometimes a bundle of fine threads, or a membrane with swellings or fringes, or a fine fabric-like tissue. Its visibility may wax or wane. And to the touch, it may feel soft, elastic, fibrous, or hard. It has the power of self-locomotion and moves generally with a slow reptilian movement, though it is capable of moving with extreme rapidity. To French neurologist uh, Jules Bernard Louis, A radiating neural force in the forms of a luminous fluid that floods out of the body orifices, especially the eyes and the mouth. English entomologist and geologist Robert John Tilliard described it as... A large mass of peculiar white substance, just like cooked brains. To the touch, the mass felt like warm rubber or wax and was definitely turgid. Most all researchers agreed that it was a living substance that was one with the medium. Detaching it or grabbing could destroy the ectoplasm and cause pain to the medium. Likewise, all agreed that ectoplasm must return back to the body of the medium producing it. Some asserted that a sort of balance of volume was retained and that uh, mediums uh, proportionally shrunk or lost some vitality when the substance uh, of the ectoplasm grew from them. Naturally, all this rules out removing a sample for daylight inspection after the seance. In his 1930 book, Edge of the Unknown, uh, Doyle also notes, It seems extremely sensitive to the action of light. A figure built up in it and detached from the medium dissolves in light quicker than a snow image under a tropical sun. When still attached to the medium, the ectoplasm flies back with great force on exposure to the light. And, in spite of the laughter of the scoffers, there is nonetheless good evidence that several mediums have been badly injured by the recoil after a light had suddenly been struck by some amateur detective. And Doyle offers for us a particularly loathsome analogy, an image I will close with uh, this episode, though one I hope that will not linger too long in your mind's eye. Uh, namely, he asserts, or he quotes the assertion of another colleague of his, that ectoplasm may be analogous to... Dermoid cysts, those mysterious formations which rise as small tumors in any part of the body, particularly above the eyebrow, and which, when opened by the surgeon, are found to contain hair, teeth, or embryonic bones. There is no doubt, as he claims, some rough analogy, but the dermoid cyst is at least in the same flesh and blood plane of nature as the fetus inside it, while in the ectoplasm we are dealing with an entirely new and strange development. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and will continue listening to future episodes. Uh, our next 
episode will continue the story of spiritualists and our episode on the 29th before halloween will talk about necromancy in the classical world and has some rather ghastly stories of witchcraft and bloody rituals graveyards and so forth um uh, please do like and comment wherever you can on social media reviews uh Likes and shares uh, are also really important for the continuance of this show. Um, if you'd like a little bit more information on the topics we discuss, please avail yourself of our website material on boneandsickle.com, all one word, uh, where you can find show notes and images and video and links to audio used in the show. You'll also find there our uh, Facebook group and Twitter account and our Patreon link where you can support uh, this extremely labor-intensive undertaking. Patreon members also have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of the podcast, uh, notes on topics uh, not don't make it into the episode, uh, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, uh, the show soundscapes, the ambient music and effects you hear behind my voice, um, also other audio uh, uh, readings from uh, folklore texts and a copy of my uh, crepus book is also available and a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson which is as I always say suitable for framing and any sort of adulation you choose your donation in any amount helps me to continue the show on a regular basis and donations begin at one dollar a month Thanks to all who support this podcast, including our latest batch of patrons, uh, Alicia Jarvis, Daniel Smith, Darcy Verevis, uh, Jeff Fitzgerald, Kevin O'Connor, Kevin DeHart, Mary Jessica, Peter Aller, Sixel, uh, Steve Morrison, and Tabitha Mata. Um, and I do apologize if I've bungled any of your names. Um, the show is written and produced by me, Al Reitenauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thank you so much for listening.